Hey gang, welcome to episode 170 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson, coming to you from NoPro headquarters in Los Angeles, and this episode is brought to you by our friends at Meow Wolf in Santa Fe, New Mexico. More on that in a moment. This week on the show, Eden LaRue of Odyssey Works, which is a legendary company in the immersive field. Uh, Odyssey Works was started around the turn of this century uh, in San Francisco. They are best known for crafting uh, intensely personal pieces of sort of all-encompassing immersive work that lasts between 24 and 36 hours for one person at a time. Well, and not at a time, but but for one person. These are not shows that are meant to repeat. They are not things that you're just pumping people through the turnstile. They are they are crafted experiences for one person. Um, it's uh, Odyssey Works has been, like I said, around for gosh, like the better part of seventeen years now, and they're. Um, They've they've built a whole grammar, a whole language uh, around this type of design. They often work in a collective form. Uh, Eden's been with them for quite some time, and we're going to learn a lot today. We're going to learn a lot together. Uh, this is another episode that uh, the interviewing was done by Catherine uh, as I run around. And you're going to see how much running around there is. And you know what? Let's, let's talk about that right now, because um, <laughs> we have an event schedule. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be over at the Chuckle Hut uh, in uh, Paramus uh, from uh, November 17th through... Wait, no, sorry. Uh, I'm getting a broadcast from a comedy podcast. Sorry about that. Um, but we are going to be doing a lot of events. Um, here's one that just got announced that's taking place this Monday. I'm going to be in Santa Fe. I'm going to be in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, giving uh, a beta version of a speech uh, that is going to be one day known as The Art of Presence. And I'm just, you know, going to live fire test it in front of a, a real audience, uh, including people who work at Meow Wolf. Santa Fe, of course, is where Meow Wolf is. I think I mentioned that. Um, I'm utterly terrified. Uh, it's been a crazy month, and I've got uh, I've got my notes um, mostly mostly in place. So it's gonna be fun. Um, you know, I'm I'm gonna riff to some degree, a structured riff. It's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be really interesting. Uh, no biggie. Uh, yeah, Wolf well, sister, a big supporter, and uh, they're just you know bringing me out here to do this. So um, you know. Um, let's watch me fail. No, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to it, uh, for, for a couple of months now, actually. Um, so again, Monday, 22nd, uh, the stagecoach foundation presents, uh, you can find the link over on our Facebook and all our other channels. Uh, and we will link it as well in the show notes. Uh, November 5th, uh, we're doing, well, Leia, we're, me and my capacity as a member of Leia, uh, we're doing a, uh, there I go again, uh, a workshop we're calling Meet the Press. Uh, that's featuring uh, Brian Bishop, Juliet bennett Ryla, and myself. Uh, this is going to be a workshop for uh, creators uh, to kind of give them the, the lowdown on 
what best practices are when uh, doing public relations stuff, uh, when you're trying to court the press. Uh, this is honed out of all the experience we have in watching people just blow it constantly every day in our inboxes, people just screwing up um, and, you know, occasionally doing it right. So we're going to give everyone essentially a template of like, you know, these are the do's, these are the don'ts, these are the horror stories. And we may even walk you through the process and show you why some things are just terrible, terrible ideas and why other things are a joy to work with. So that's going to be $5 at the door at Thymele Arts in East Hollywood, um, November the 5th. That's a Monday, 7.30 p.m. Uh, come on by. Uh, limited seating available. So please, if you can, RSVP on the Facebook so we know how many people to expect. And this is going to be useful. Brian Bishop writes for The Verge. Uh, Juliet writes for uh, LAist and The Hollywood Reporter these days. And this Noah Nelson guy, uh, he's like flying all over the country. Um, in New York City on that same day, what? By Coastal, Everything Immersive has a meetup uh, that uh, that's gonna, means that uh, both Catherine and the Spiras are going to be in attendance at the meetup. You can find that also in the show notes. And on Denver on November 10th, my God, this is a lot in a short period of time. Uh, I'll be speaking at the Denver Immersive Summit, uh, probably giving a more refined version of the talk that I'm giving in Santa Fe. So there we go. Uh, check out Denver Immersive Summit uh, for more. Uh, there's going to be other speakers there as well. And that is the late October, early November event schedule for Nova City. <laughs> what? When did that happen? Uh, over the past few weeks. Um, that's when it happened. Got another rather sizable announcement. Applications for the Immersive Design Summit, which are uh, which is happening February 22nd and 23rd at Cafe du Nord and the Swedish American Music Hall in San Francisco, um, is, sorry, I nearly slipped into another like riff on a comedy thing. Uh, applications are open because I feel like I sound like Every comedy podcast now. Well, then we're going to be at, you know, it's like, nope, no. <laughs> I'm really sorry. It was always going to be like this. It just apparently today's the day where it's like this. Um, applications for the Immersive Design Summit, which are going to be at the Swedish American Music Hall and Cafe du Nord in San Francisco on February 22nd and 23rd. We've got a stellar lineup that's already uh, starting to be announced. We're not done announcing people yet. We've got amazing people. We're not done announcing people yet. Uh, applications are now open. They will be open, I believe, through November 18th is when we close the applications. And we have announced the price. The price is $495. Um, am I super ecstatic about charging almost $500 for this when last year we charged $275? Well, I mean, let's examine this. Uh, it's two days instead of one. Last year, we had a sweetheart deal and that we didn't pay rent. This year, we're paying rent. Um, we've got people coming in from abroad who we are flying in. Uh, we, we do not, we're not doing that thing where, um, you know, we make everyone pay their own way in order to come be a speaker. So just know that if you're putting money down into this thing, <coughs> and I know that for some people, $500 is like, nothing. And for other people, $500 is like, that's a half a month's rent. Or if you're lucky, that's a month's rent. Um, so recognize that it is not 
cheap, we are continuing to look into sponsorship. So, hey, if you're a company in the immersive space and you're like, oh, I want to get in on this, talk to us because um, we've got some options uh, coming open that could help lower the price for everybody uh, or could help us provide more scholarships. There are going to be a limited number of full and partial scholarships to the event. We do have double the capacity this year. We've got 200 tickets that are available. Last year was just 100. And talk to anyone who was at the IDS last year and ask them, hey, is this worth it? And just listen to their answer. That's what you should do. I encourage you to do it. Don't take it from me. Take it from this guy or this gal over here. There you go. All right. That's what's up. Also, uh, we have uh, a few more slots open for uh, TarotCon and Marissa Nielsen Pincus's. Sorry, I'm going off my brain and not my notes. Workshop in Los Angeles. Uh, that's the next Big Leo workshop. That's going to be in December. Uh, I think we've got five slots left. Uh, the first 10 slots have gone. I think we're keeping around 15. Might be up to 18. But um, uh, just a few slots left for that. The price did just go up on that. Uh, and uh, that's coming up in December. All right. That's all fantastic news. Um, all the events and whatnot. Whew, man. Uh, used to be that we just talked about other people's events and now suddenly there's there's all of ours. The Patreon. The Patreon crossed our next, our, our last, <laughs> used to be our next, now it's our last, our last big goal. Uh, we got to the 1250 financial goal, which is amazing. Uh, thank you all so much. Uh, this, it, it doesn't just help us out immensely. It's like, this helps us out so much. No, this makes what we do possible, all right? This is several full-time jobs now, uh, and we do not have the income to actually do several full-time jobs. So people go, I don't know how you do it. And I'm telling you, I don't know how we do it either. But we do need your support. And because we reached that goal, I went out, I did it. I got the new audio kit. Uh, you will start to hear the new audio kit in upcoming episodes. Uh, very excited about it. As an audio nerd, I'm super stoked. I may even do. I may even do an irregular. Was like, let's talk about what we bought. Patreon.com/slash No Presidium is where you help us out. The other big news is that we hit 200 backers. 200 people every month put a little money down. Some of them put a lot of money down. Put at least a little money down and say, hey. I want this to continue. I want this to exist. And as you can tell, if you've been a long-term backer of this, if you've been in here for a while, if at this point you've put like a few hundred bucks into our world, you know that we do everything in our power to make it worth your while. And on the day when we are full-time in this gig and you know, I'm, you know, full-time in this gig and also like doing Leia and doing IDS and, and doing other things just in immersive world. When, when all of our attention is here, just imagine how much more we're going to be doing. Let's thank our latest backers, starting with Nyamak, who is one of the founding members of Leia. So it's always super flattering when one of the people I work with, one of our friends drops a little in. Um, it's, it, it means a lot. Also, coming along for the ride, Jamie Tharp, Gianni Chiaffi, Natra Obscura, and Gyami Saindan. I probably butchered your name. I'm sorry. Please message me on Patreon, and I will say it properly. 
Sustaining backers of No Persinium are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Arthur Tubman, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. And of course, we get a lot of support from our friends at Meow Wolf, who I finally get to visit next week, right? I ain't even been there yet. It's like I'm coming home to a home I've never known. All right. We got a big episode here for you. Uh, I listened to the audio. Uh, they're, they're at a little distance, so it's going to be one of those. So apologies in advance. Uh, a little bit of wonky, uh, wonkiness there. Um, more when we get back on the other side, including me being incredibly enthusiastic about In Another Room, uh, the 2018 edition of that show, which I did a flash review of, and going over some of the other stuff that's uh, currently running around in Los Angeles. So uh, I will see you on the other side of this. <laughs> This is Catherine Yu of No Persinium, and I'm here in New York City with... Eden LaRue, and I'm the Assistant Director of Odyssey Works. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to Odyssey Works? Yeah, um, so I am trained as a visual artist and uh, also a writer and teacher. Um, and I have a background particularly with immersive installation or, you know, uh, in art school, it's just the sculpture department, basically. So I studied at NYU here in New York and um, was always someone who was really dissatisfied going to museums. I wanted to touch everything and have these really tactile and sensorial, sensorially complex experiences, and everything was really flat. So I started making a lot of installations where your body was encountering for a while I was making sculptures out of books and you would hear book pages rustling or you would feel the breeze you would smell the pages that were old Um, and then from there I moved into making big sculptures and installations with beds and I was really fascinated with um, what is it as someone who is in the art world to sort of invite someone in and offer a level of hospitality where someone might spend an entire night in a gallery. Um, And the beds became tactile in their own way. They were filled with different materials. So one of them was uh, a set of book sheets or book pages sewn into sheets. And that was the sort of transition moment. And then there was a bed that was filled with jasmine rice. There was a bed that was filled with uh, earth from beneath a tree that was struck by lightning. There was a set of sheets that were encrusted with salt from the Great Salt Lake. And people would basically rent the space on Airbnb and spend the night in there. So in a lot of ways, like uh, I don't talk about that background a lot as it relates to Odyssey Works, but I think it's totally about a sense of immersion that's present, and that's always been really interesting to me. Um, And I think writing and reading is also like the old school form of VR, whatever we were talking about, VR. (laughs) Yeah, observation. Yeah, as a kid, I was totally engrossed and didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to leave the world of my books, and that's the same sort of fascination, so I think writing is also part of my practice in that way, Um, even if it's a very, what most people see as like a unidimensional medium. 
Cool. Yeah. And so you're making these very tactile experiences, um, working as an artist, and somehow you found your way into Odyssey Works, which, it, like, how do you even describe what you do? Um, so Odyssey Works studies the life of one individual for, like, six months, and then we make an experience that's built around their life for them, and usually that experience that we design is transformative and it's transformative because it lasts so long so usually the pieces are starting out at a day or two days a weekend long experience but we have done pieces that were even three months four months long um and I actually came to Odyssey Works when I was in art school and uh as I was my friend Ariel worked with Odyssey Works for a while and we were in school together and he said I think that like you have to meet Abe and you should get involved in this. It's really fascinating work. And um, at the time, I was really feeling just so jaded by the art world. Um, and I don't know if this is the feeling in the theater world because I actually am not that close to theater practice. But um, in the art world, it was just like a lot of money and high, like a lot of elitism and you would go to Chelsea galleries on Thursday night and drink the free wine and that was all great and fun but at a certain sense it felt like the works on the wall were kind of arbitrary and I wasn't sure if I would like them or not and I sort of didn't think a lot of it was good work and so I was interested in making um, work that felt like you were writing a love letter to someone and I've always written letters by hand um, a lot so when I met Abe, it felt sort of like that was the bridging of my practice, which was all about these intimate, direct forms of address into a different realm that was also multidisciplinary, which I had always been drawn to work that was interdisciplinary. And so now we're, it's all just, that was the slippery slope. Like we met and we became great friends and six or seven years, almost seven years later. So why art for one person? Why study someone for six months and really do something that's super tailored to them? Because I think the possibility to transform that person is so profound and everyone deserves to have an experience. I think everyone is worthy of having an odyssey and everyone is worthy of being seen in that way and so many people go through their whole life without being seen in such an intimate way and I think then that in turn helps all of us as artists who work on the project to see ourselves better it's not just about them or the impact isn't just for the audience which is the sort of I think people are, there's like a sense of celebrity around like the person that we pick sometimes or we all can get sort of like oh they're here um, but I think it's it's easy to forget that the same we feel the same transformation that they do in a certain capacity in our own lives when we work on this project yeah that's really interesting so maybe you could um, walk me through just the whole process of yeah, finding totally. someone and designing for them and then actually the execution of the experience? Yeah. Um, 
it's funny because we just did this masterclass in Baja, which was like the very distilled version. But the so that was a week long. But usually our process, like I was saying, is like six to nine months. And um, so we'll put out a call for applications, and um, anyone can apply. Usually it's restricted by location or city that you're in, and you have to be available on the dates that we've already chosen. And so the application is a questionnaire that is, depends on how detailed the answers you give are, but usually it's about, people say it takes like 10 hours to fill out, and it usually ends up being like 20 single space pages, everything from like, where were you born and what's your birthday, and do you have any nicknames, or uh, what's your favorite kind of toilet paper, and do you, what is your relationship with money? Do you, what's your favorite kind of dance? Do you read? What are your favorite books? What are your least favorite books? What makes you distraught? Um, so very expansive. And then we filter through those applications. We pick usually three finalists or two. We'll interview them for half an hour or an hour. Um, over Skype or in person if possible, depending on where they are. And then from there we choose the finalist and we call the person that we choose our participant very intentionally because we want them to be active. And um, it's a sort of reminder that they're engaged. They're not just receiving, receiving, receiving. Um, and then after that we get a list of 10 to a dozen family, friends, co-workers, uh, kids, neighbors, uh, former partners, whatever, whatever people are most important to that person, the participant. And then we divvy up in our team, we make phone calls and we do short interviews with them. So we get both the, the personal understanding of someone and how they understand their self, themselves and then we also get the external perspective, and that can be really crucial. Um, there are things that we always find that like, we never would have known just by reading an application or a questionnaire. And then after that, we also usually get a map of important places to the person in the city that we're gonna be making a piece. And then our team goes on a retreat for a week, and we consume all of the materials, whether it's books, music, food, um, films. We watch all the things that they love. We look at what they don't like and try and sink into the mindset of what their subjectivity is. Um, and then we sort of design a piece for them and it always works backwards from this question, what would you wish for the participant? So if I'm talking to you, Catherine, and I would think like, what do I wish? What do I think that you need right now? And that's not like a, oh, you need a fancy car to make your life seem like cooler and more exciting or whatever it is. Um, it's really a, there's space for challenge or like a little bit of pressing upon the participant. Like it's not all just smooth and wonderful. We want to, and I believe that to create transformation, you really have to challenge something. And so that's always essential. And then we design scenes built out of that based on what we know. Um, and then the production period is 
it depends on how elaborate the process is or the piece, but usually it's going to be about a month or two months is the production period. And then we have the piece, and then we all just collapse with like complete joy and our lives feel empty afterwards. <laughs> but then it's on to the next one, right? Usually we try and take a little bit of a break, okay. but yeah. <laughs> it needs, I think the work is so emotionally exhausting and uh, our team is so giving and generous with their attention and their time. Um, and so much of it is volunteer work that we have to have that recuperation. Mm-hmm. Um, so how many people are working on this experience from your team and then how many of their friends and family get involved? Yeah, it varies a lot piece to piece. So uh, right now, Abe and I are the ones that sort of steer the ship, but there are always, um, I would say, around a, a dozen artists or somewhere in the range of six to 12 people who are helping craft in a very serious way. And they might be, say, bottom lining like a large chunk of the piece themselves. Um, and that actually is reflected in the number that we took to. Baja for our master class. There were 12 of us total, including even myself. And that's a really great balance. You get many different disciplines in there who can contribute different ways and ex- areas of expertise and craft. Um, and then from there, there's always tons of volunteers. So um, I think the largest number of volunteers we had for a scene was around 100. So sometimes, if you include those volunteers, we have like 150 people working on a production And then the friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, they all, they're all helping. There too. Yeah. yeah. I mean I think they're I mean it depends on the person and how they wanna be they want those people involved to be involved, but usually there's then another maybe dozen people who are close to them or maybe even more. Um, but it really it really depends on the participant. So much of it changes participant to participant. They might be a Someone is really lonely, and um, maybe they don't have as many people to call upon, but we still try and make something really beautiful for them. So I imagine you spend a lot of time in the application process. It must be very difficult to choose a single participant. Mm-hmm. How how does that even happen? Like, how can you compare people? You know? Yeah, I. It's interesting. I think that's one of the challenging things is that every life is so rich and. Everyone has their own world, and um, you know our our method of selection is very imprecise. It's it's funny. It's a lot of it is a gut check. It's like we'll read something and just be really struck. And sometimes I can't even pinpoint what it is that is staying with me about a person. Um, we do have some like firm limitations, like. We are really wary if someone has a sort of current or ongoing mental health issue because we're not licensed therapists and we're not professionals who have the capacity to deal with that. Um, we also really prefer people to be over 21 because there's a certain level of like your life is still being formed when you're younger. Um, 
Although, that said, we just did a piece for a woman who was 22, so um, she was the youngest person, I think, that we had ever made an odyssey for, Saldano. Um, and other than that, it's really, we try and do people who are vastly different than whomever we've just done, so... Um, Dif- yeah, different always, how? It varies, so, like, I'm thinking of all the odysseys that I've worked on. The first odyssey I worked on was this guy named Carl who was an information architect, so like very high brain intellectual. Then the next one we did was this woman, Laura, who was an Argentine immigrant, queer woman um, who lived in the Bay Area, so a very different, like the lights went off, um, <laughs> a very different perspective than Carl's. Uh, and then after that, we did Rick Moody's piece. And what we were interested in was he was on the older end of people that we'd ever done Odysseys for. Oftentimes, we get people applying in their 20s and 30s. And he was in his 50s. So we were really fascinated in what it's going to be like to make a piece for someone who's probably like pretty centered and anchored in themselves. And he knew a lot about himself. He wasn't exploring and figuring out as much as someone who would be younger. And he really had a, an established art practice. And so we were like, where is there room to, to press upon something there? So, Yeah, that's great. So let's talk a little bit about the retreat. So I've heard Abe say that you spend the retreat trying to fall in love with the participant. Mm-hmm. What's the genesis of that, and how does that work? Well, I think the real precedent for our work uh, is the love poem or the love letter. And so it makes sense to try and fall in love with them, right? And that's part of the empathetic understanding that we have. It's is so fundamental to doing the work. and. Um, I think we're all sort of startled that we fall in love every time because like you just heard me describe, every participant is so vastly different than the one before them and they're not the people that I would necessarily encounter in my life. So the retreat is really about this almost like syncing up and uh, allowing ourselves to come together around the shared experience of that person and like... I said, like, eating, sleeping, breathing, and hopefully at that point, usually we have a dream about our participant. Like, that's kind of the weird uh, register of, like, oh, we're there. Like, we're, mm-hmm. we're onto something when they're infiltrating our own subconsciousness. Um, so, yeah, I think the falling in love just happens when you come to... When you're given so much vulnerable information about someone, it's inevitable that you're going to care about them really deeply. And um, I think that's like one of the greatest gifts is the reminder that we can become quite close with someone who is maybe not the person that we would normally think of ourselves as being drawn to or being fascinated with. So at this point, how much time have you spent with them either through Skype or in person? Um, some people, like, uh, let's see, Rick Moody, I don't think I met him until the day of his performance. Um, Abe usually is the one that's done the one-on-one interview to, in the sort of, like, preliminary, like, three finalist rounds. 
I'll have seen that, I'll have seen a video, um, or maybe talked to them for an hour, but I'm really just going off conversations with their friends and family and the questionnaire. Um, so you've got all this documentation, this material to work off of. You start designing, where do you even start? Um, well, we start, like I mentioned, with that question of what do you wish. So we'll really, we sink in on the retreat into this, like, empathetic mode of consuming everything that we can um, in alignment with their tastes. And then we just sort of talk about our our feelings of what they're struggling with. And it evolves really organically. There's lots of, like, diagramming which is definitely Abe's area of expertise, not mine. Um, so visually thinking and mapping things out and meditating, going on walks. Um, it's very ruminative, I think. Um, and from there, sometimes we just have these impulses, like with Carl. He was so fast-paced and so intellectual and so in his head that we had, I remember sitting at the, in this house in Massachusetts on retreat, and one of the um, things that we said on our gut level was just, I want to make him walk like 10 miles. And we didn't totally know why we were saying that at the time, but then we did ultimately come around to a scene that was very similar. He walked the whole length of Central Park from... 110th Street all the way down. In fact, he went to Alphabet City. So oh, wow. He walked almost the whole length of Manhattan. And that was what we realized when we looked back was that we really wanted him to be in his body. So the it sounded silly. It sounded mildly cruel to be like, we want him to walk 10 miles. But what we then were able to understand about that was that it actually was really... He was disconnected from his physical self, and so it made quite a bit of sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. So as you're diagramming, are you also writing, um, like, dialogue? Are there things that you want people to say to the participant? No, not usually writing dialogue. I mean, I think a big part of our process is our own journaling and our own thinking through things. Um, Dialogue is something that's kind of unwieldy, like you can't control what someone's going to say, so there, there is no script. The diagram can map out a general tenor of a conversation or a topic, but, and there are ways that you can sort of have an idea of where that scene might go, but ultimately it's more powerful to have someone be themselves as an actor that we work with than it is for them to play a role. And we really try and work in this method where we're working with actors to call upon the very like real lived experience that they have. Um, because that creates a profounder connection, I think, when they can tap into whatever is emerging. So for some people, um, yeah, it just makes them more comfortable, I think, to talk about what's actually there. So uh, can we can we talk a little bit about these uh, infiltrators yes. and your planted objects, which I find fascinating? Yeah, totally. Um, so oftentimes, because Abe is a trained writer, a poet, and I also am a writer, 
Um, we've done a lot of forging of novels. Um, so we'll take someone's like favorite author. We've done Borges, and uh, before my time, there was a Calvino forgery. Um, we did a children's book also. <laughs> so we'll imitate and emulate uh, a voice. Um, from a certain author and maybe make a, sh a book of short stories. So with Carl, he was really into this logical brain and Borges was one of his favorite authors. It made total sense for us to forge a book of stories that were by Borges and um, they were just connected with themes that had come up in his questionnaire and in the application. So we then printed the book, we took it to a studio and aged the book in a lab, in a preservation lab, and made it look like it was from the 70s. Um, and then we planted it. One of his friends gave it to him and said, hey, I found this like book I'd never heard of from Borges. And uh, I found it at this used bookstore in Soho. Like, you should totally read this. And Carl, we knew he would just eat it up. So, yeah, he read that. That was like the week before his performance. Um, and the actors really, when they infiltrate, it's sometimes they're known as Odyssey Works folks, and they say, you know, come over and we're gonna do this exercise, or we're gonna work together in some capacity. We're gonna do a dance class together. Um, and other times they're not known as being part of Odyssey Works and like I said they really just sort of let whatever naturally comes out of their relationship evolve and then we in and that's maybe like a month before the Odyssey itself that these actors are coming in um, and then we sort of are able to because we're in our production mode work that into whatever we've diagrammed and mapped out for the piece itself so Carl we had an actor who tried to meet up with Carl a couple of times. He waited at a bar, he showed up at a conference, and what evolved naturally was Carl was not interested in talking to him. It was this like almost antagonistic relationship. So this guy, Chris Toko, was kept trying to like befriend him and Carl wasn't interested. So we just had to to work with the fact that that was what was nascent out of it. And that was kind of fascinating, but other times it's like, like I wasn't infiltrating, but uh, the woman Soldano that we made a piece for in Mexico, I felt like she was like, if we lived in the same city, we would be best friends. Like we had so much in common that we could just talk for hours and hours. And so I wasn't acting, but you know, like I was the one that picked her up from the airport before her piece started and we just like talked and talked and talked and talked, you know, and there were things that I knew I wanted to share with her that would sort of plant foreshadowing and plant these seeds for her in the next day, but it varies a lot. Yeah, that's amazing. It reminds me a lot of um, alternate reality games and experiences. And so you are kind of priming maybe these central themes or questions through forged novels, forged picture books, mm -hmm. um, what appears to be a coincidental conversation. So mm -hmm. the actor that you had that was essentially trying to connect with Carl was just going to his favorite places and seeing if he would run into him. Yeah, or I think he just sort of tried to introduce himself. He had, 
This sounds so weird. He had like a pouch of nuts that he offered Carl. Like, <laughs> I can't remember why we had, why he, maybe Chris already was carrying around like pouches of almonds or something, but that sounds so sketchy, right? <laughs> but um, I guess Carl thought it was sketchy too. <laughs> awesome. So you also talked a little bit about um, the nascent themes. So that, how do you work in I guess, what's happening in that like improvisational sense with the central question you're working towards? Mm. Yeah, so the sort of symbolism and the seeds of narrative um, come about in different ways and we try and plant, uh, like for Rick, we were really interested in this idea of home. He was in the middle of um, getting a divorce and he had a child and was getting remarried and moving and we wanted him to find a sense of home that was purely just in himself um, and not reliant on others and so that idea of home played out in many different ways and it was kind of all these just tendrils of uh, meaning and so one of the ways that that happened was him reading a story to his daughter made a children's book and in that there were themes of like solitude and finding comfort in one's own private space and then there was a physical space that mirrored what happened in the children's book that was a room it was actually a kind of creepy abandoned uh hardware store in downtown brooklyn um and he went there every week for a month and spent time listening to a piece of music and the piece of music evolved each week and there were um, in the hardware store which we called the cloister um, to sort of call upon this like sense of monk like the monk's solitude um, in that there was also this mulch that would change shape it was like a grid at one point, and I'm trying to remember, basically it expanded to cover more and more of the floor each week when he was there, and that was really, I mean, it was harder to plant that, but we wanted to work with this, the symbolism of, like, when you're planting, plant, when you're, yeah, when you're, like, actually gardening, gardening, planting things, you smell that, and so, like, one of my fascinations has always been scent and how it can bring people back. And my hope was that, like, five years after his odyssey, Rick, every time he smelled mulch, would feel that, like, return to solitude and being in himself and what it is to make a home. And I think that was one of those things that, like, who knows, I haven't talked to him in a little while, so maybe he still thinks, like, every time he smells mulch, he associates it with his odyssey, but... And then the one of the whole days was him returning back to his home. We went into New Jersey, and then he sort of came back to New York City through this, like, long handoff of many friends guiding him home, and so that was another way of thinking about this idea of home symbolically. So there are so many different directions that you can take it. And the impact on the participants, maybe you show them or give them something they didn't know they were looking for. Um, How do people react after their odyssey is concluded? Mm. It's so beautiful to watch, and I think some of it is 
it probably unfolds without us even seeing it. But um, I see just in the like physical expressions, so often what I see is just like a sense of being seen, being really comfortable in oneself, um, profound, being profoundly moved. A lot of them cry at some point or are humbled or um, I love this word humiliated not because uh, of the connotation that's sort of negative but mm-hmm. humiliated in the sense of humus and going back to the earth like but not being, not embarrassed yeah humiliation in terms of like returning to your most basic fundamental self um, and having humility more towards that meaning um, what else? I mean, they also change their lives. So we hear about the different things that they do after the fact. Um, everyone moves, everyone changes jobs. A lot of times they're breaking up with someone or getting like more solidifying, solidifying their relationship in some way, whether that's marriage or moving in together. Um, and I think those things are not a direct result of the Odyssey, but like a result of our participants looking at their lives and then having a certain level of clarity that they bring back to their lives where they're like, I'm not scared anymore to do this thing that was terrifying or I don't feel like so much is at risk or they just have this, the veneer gets pulled away and that's really profound. Sometimes we have smaller things like Carl started running the week after his odyssey because he wanted to be more in shape or he like felt there was a lot of physical activity in his uh, odyssey and he was aware of that and he felt like he needed to engage his body in that way so small things can also be really profound in my opinion so as part of the design of the experience uh you could have these seeds these emergent themes that you're planting weeks ahead of time and then the actual Odyssey itself is how long? Um, I would say usually it's a weekend. So we'll say, like, take Saturday and Sunday, October 6th and 7th or whatever it is, um, and set that side that time aside. So, yeah, I would say two days. But in my mind, and like, part of what's powerful is that it's actually a month and there are actors who are coming into your life a month ahead of time think that still counts even if it's not 24 hours of dense experience um and that's part of why I think odysseys are meaningful is there is that bleed between life and what they consider the performance so once the performance ends how do they transition back into the real world how do you help ease them into normal life again um I'm not sure we do, to be honest. <laughs> um, in fact, we we'd kind of try and... Well, we always warn the friends and family of our participant, like, please don't ask them about their experience for a week. So it's really important that they don't have to verbally process what's just happened um, and try and create meaning out of it immediately because at least my experience in receiving an odyssey was I felt things that were so complex and I couldn't articulate them and if I'd been forced to articulate it it wouldn't have it would have impinged on my ability to receive 
Um, another thing that we usually do is we will make sure that there's maybe someone they're going to meet afterwards who can just they can spend time with because it's very climactic and going home after being at the center of this world and so many people putting their attention on you can be kind of discombobulating like oh it's over now that's not so we try and have like someone close to them who will usher them home um and other than that it's kind of up to them at that point we're really we say you know if you want to be in touch with us we would love that and we have a debrief usually one or two weeks later with them where our core team of artists will talk to them about what their experience was but um it's I think it's also important when they've been so vulnerable to allow them to choose the level of engagement that they have with us afterwards a lot of them come up come back and volunteer in some capacity with Odyssey Works or participate in other people's odysseys as a sort of pay it forward because I've heard a lot of them say like how can I ever repay you and like don't you don't need to (laughs) um just give this attention and love to other people in the world yeah yeah I think uh I think we skipped over one of the maybe more foundational parts um budget how is this getting paid for (laughs) (laughs) um it depends so there's we can either be commissioned by wealthy individuals who have the money to and that usually starts around 35k but can go in any direction you know (laughs) um we can work with anything that just sort of the budget in a commission determines the scale other times we've received grants or commissions from public arts or performance festivals um, and in that case then we're giving it as a gift to someone completely gratis and um, that's kind of my favorite mode of working just because it feels really special to have someone receive this simply because there's no yeah there's no reason in fact it's Right, you're not expecting anything back from them. Yeah, um, and there's no sense of, you know, when someone writes you a check, there can be the sense of, like, well, now I have to fulfill a certain duty to you, um, or you're going to have expectations of what your odyssey will be and what you want in it, and we need complete artistic control. Um, I think also maybe before my time, there might have been, like, Um, but there have been other modes too. I think that before my time, they did a fundraiser, um, like a Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So there have been many different ways. And now our work is starting. Part of why we've moved into teaching classes on empathy and experience design, or collaboration and meaning making and narrative, is really as a way to support the work because applying for grants just is so taxing sometimes um, and because our work doesn't fit into a category very easily um, it felt important to find something that was more sustainable so a lot of our uh, every time we teach a class a portion of that is then going to a future production um, and that's been really satisfying because I think our work is so inefficient like the New York Times quote just sort of like haunts me like it's a beautiful inefficiency doesn't make sense to just make this kind of work for one person and in some ways like when Abe and I wrote the book um, about Odyssey Works and we were 
thinking about how we were going to make that happen, we were like half joking that we wanted to start a cult or like an army of people who would go out into the world and make beautiful experiences for each other. And our book actually, before the, before the marketing department got a hold of it, was called um, Six Proposals for a More Beautiful World. So it was these ideas of how do you, how can you make this world a better place to live in? And we both really strongly believe in the sort of ideals and principles that are part of our process and the process mirrors how I want to be in the world as a human, which is a deeper understanding of what it means to be human is about um, how can you practice being really inquisitive? How can you practice deep listening and make people feel seen? How can you empathetically connect with someone? Um, and then you pair that, that process with experience design principles and that's sort of hopefully makes everything more beautiful. Amazing. So the participants, you said a lot of them do come back. Do you stay in touch with them? Do they want to come back and find out how it all worked, or is that best left like behind the curtain? Um, in the debrief, we sort of leave it to them. Like We always have a period where they can ask any questions they want about the piece. Um, Sometimes that means that they won't find out that the book is a forgery, or sometimes, or maybe they won't mean, maybe they'll find out when they look at our website or some other documentation of their piece. Um, we always try and get them not to research us too much when they know that they've been selected. Um, but I think, yeah, I think there's, it's really up to them. Like, we have, they've given us so much and been so vulnerable and shared some of their biggest life secrets with us, and we hold that as really sacred, but I am always very aware that it isn't necessarily reciprocated. Like, they're not getting to learn my life story, and so if they want to get to know it, then I would love to share it and be um, with them in that capacity, but I think also sometimes can be even more vulnerable to realize that it's a little bit of an imbalanced equation and so you know uh, I see Carl maybe like once a year or I'll email with Rick every once in a while um, people's lives get busy but we always just say like we'd always love to hear from you and we just sort of check up on them every once in a while Great. Yeah. How do you think being an artist and making these experiences has changed you? Oh, profoundly. I think, um, well, <laughs> one of the things I've been very aware of lately is that it's such an ideal form, or like, there are a lot of idealist notions in the in the practice of the work and at this point I've now been doing it for so long that it's I think sometimes when I'm out in the world and people aren't embodying what it is to be empathetic in the way that I have had the rare opportunity to be in a bubble of people who are just so empathetic and such good connectors that I get a little like uh, impatient or something like I wish that it could be everywhere all the time. Um, and 
it's affected me in that I think ultimately and that like now I teach writing and um, I think the same things that I teach in my classes and the workshops with Odyssey Works are what I'm teaching my students. I think all of those, all that inquisitiveness, that empathy, that deep listening will make a good writer. And so I think everything that I do ultimately is with the aim to help people be more human and sink more deeply into their humanity and their vulnerability. And so it's shaped me in this way that I kind of I couldn't clearly articulate the boundaries of, but it's really profound. Um, Do you have advice for anyone who wants to get into experience design? Mm. Yeah, actually, I was asked this the other day, and I was like, oh, I don't know, what is my advice? But I was thinking about um, when I was in undergrad, I took this sculpture class, and I remember one of our assignments was In Search of the Miraculous, and that was, it was the title of this piece by an artist, Bastian Otter. Um, and there wasn't any further direction. It was just make a piece that's In Search of the Miraculous. Um, and I, was, I struggled with it so much. It was so hard for me. I was like, I went through this whole existential moment where I was like, what is it to be in search of the miraculous? And then eventually I realized that if everything that I was doing was not in search of the miraculous, that it was a waste of time and like that the bar should always be that high. Um, so I think my advice to experienced designers is to always be searching for that deeper meaning. I think there's like a lot of my greatest disappointment in immersive theater and VR and experience design and whatever this world that's sort of emerging or this path um, is that a lot of times it doesn't get to that layer of deeper meaning and feels gimmicky. Um, and so I, my advice is really to find, find the nugget of something you really care about and could spend your whole life thinking about and thinking through and put that at the core of your work rather than some cool new flashy bit of technology that will steer the ship rather than your idea and your soul and your the sort of like core of who you are yeah yeah definitely so what is next for odyssey works um so many things well uh so Abe is working on a piece that I think will happen in 2020 um, and he is also working on this amazing project called the Long Architecture Project which is sort of how do you apply the experience design principles in the Odyssey Works process to architecture so he's got those things on his burner um, we're always I'm really focused on our educational sort of expanding that because to me it's really meaningful and I actually come from uh, a line of women who are educators um, both my mom and my grandmother were our teachers and um, I think that's like a really really essential job um, and I think who knows I mean 
we're always trying to develop more work and more classes. Um, we'll definitely be doing another master class. We had just like such a good experience with the master class um, in Baja in June that we have to do it again. <laughs> so maybe it'll be in Mexico, maybe it'll be somewhere else, but doing another week-long intensive with a group of artist fellows um, is definitely on the horizon. And who knows, many other things hopefully will come our way. <laughs> great, great. So how can people find out more about Odyssey Works? Um, they can read our book. <laughs> I think there's different levels of learning about Odyssey Works, or you can read. There are many amazing articles about specific Odysseys that are on our website, so odysseyworks.org. Um, you can learn about performances. You can learn about our upcoming classes. Uh, also, joining our newsletter, we have like a surprisingly high level of engagement, and we really try and not send out fluff on our newsletters. So I think we're like pretty good at that. We try and write through things that we're thinking about, and like Abe's also writing a book on experience design. Um, so he's really thinking through some of the structure of his book in engagement with our audience. Um, yeah, and reading the book, I think, or coming to one of our classes is the best way. I think there you can always go to a website, but it's far more fun to engage in person. Um, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lovely conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Catherine. Once again, I want to thank Eden LaRue for being our guest on the show and thank Catherine for covering the interview duties. Um, yeah, because we're running around a lot. We're running around a hell of a lot. Um, hey, you know how I used to like, you know, talk about a show that I saw that I was like really excited about and then sometimes like lament because it was going to have a short run and not everyone could see it. Yeah, we're there again because in another room, which um, which has existed before in a different form, uh, E3W Productions, which is uh, Austin and Aaron Keeling and Natalie Jones. Um, the Keeling brothers have been on the show. Natalie, uh, is overdue for a visit here. Um, they, uh, kicked off their immersive careers with, uh, a show also called in another room where they completely converted their apartment <laughs> into a haunted house. Uh, but not a haunted house in like a jump scare boo <laughs> kind of way. Uh, but a, that was not a computer effect, by the way, I can just do that on command. Um, they, um, yeah, we haven't gotten into my, my audio special effects library that is in my throat. Um, ask me about a TIE fighter sometime. I will do a TIE fighter for you in person. I won't do it on here, but I'll do it for you in person. Um, they did this amazing, um, kind of almost heartbreaking haunted house story. Like it was about the stories of the ghosts. It was ghost stories told by the ghosts, um, bringing you into their world, uh, and, and kind of eerie and, and frightening in some ways, uh, but all at the narrative level and, and with some pretty ingenious traversal. Um, and it's one of those things where you're like, my God, like, this is amazing. This is the first time, like this company, like, whoa, 
they had a second show called Bitter at the End, which had some wonderful design elements in it, and that like I you know I, I didn't love. Um, uh, I thought there was there was some you know kind of sophomore effort issues there with what they had done, um, and um, and then they came back around right now sort of with a surprise and dropped um, a a brand new version of In Another Room. So different house, uh, all new ghosts. And when it first came in, I was like, whoa, this is a surprise. It's out of nowhere. Oh boy. And and first that little bit like, oh, will they, can they, can they recapture it? Because it was such a special thing the first time. But let's, let's kill the suspense. Anyone who's read the flash you knows, uh, I'm enthralled. I'm almost angry with how good this is. I'm especially angry because they're doing this in a house that is going to be demolished in like a month. And so this thing, it kind of it kind of hits every check mark you could want out of a piece of ephemeral immersive theater. It is a ghost story about a house that is going to be torn down. And on some level about what happens to the ghosts when the place they are is doomed to be brought down around them. Um, not heavily. That's just a little, that's a little light dusting of theme. There's just this, um, sorry, unplug the headphones for a second. There's, it's just so good. It's just so good. It's execution, execution, execution. So they've taken the format of the original in another room. Someone just the, not the, not the full framing device, but like the bones of it, the structure, the idea that there's, you know, this kind of initial opening and then it opens out a little wider and it's kind of this type of scene. And then you get, um, you know, taken aside, uh, and given something more intimate and then you're brought back together and you're given a series of vignettes and then it pools together at the end. That structure is still there, but the stories are completely different and they're rich and the production design has stepped up, like just leapt forward in ways that are, that are wondrous and surprising and through it all, uh, it's tense. It's the only time I've been scared, like like had the willies during this whole spooky season. And that had everything to do with the story that was being told and how it was being told. This is a masterclass in pacing to create tension, to create emotion. Um, the tickets are all sold out. <laughs> the house is going to be torn down. We're doomed. We're doomed. And even if they were to take this and somehow plug it in somewhere, because that whole thing with the house being torn down, it won't be quite the same. But if there's, oh, I'm not going to appeal to justice in the universe because we know there isn't any, but if there's power in the muses in any way, shape, or form, they will find a way to, at some point, give E3W a space to play in that they can really, 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 really crank it for a long time. Because they've made something beautiful. 
And in the midst of a time when (laughs) I'm like, feel like I'm imploding to go and see that show and to see what's possible. It's like, I got to get a glimpse of what's on the other side of the hill of where we're going. So thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Austin. Because you really, really reignited my love of all of this, this week. And I'll be ever so thankful for you for that in the years to come. All right. Um, and everyone who doesn't have a ticket is like, oh, fuck, no. Um, sorry. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply sorry. I, I wish everyone I know could see this. I want to I wanna take everyone to this show. Somebody out there, you know, you know what? Yeah. Wish me luck. I'm up to something. Okay. Um, hey, you know all the other stuff. Uh, check out the show notes for the links to the things, particularly all the events. If you're in those areas, if you're in Santa Fe, if you're in Denver, when we pop through, if you're in New York City for the meetup, uh, if you're a creator and you're like, I got to figure out how to stand out, you know, please come through, get your applications in for IDS. You've got a month. Um, if you have any interest in this work at all, you know, please apply. Don't worry about the, you know, I mean, well, know that, you know, we do say like, you know, hey, consider this like a deposit, like the saying, like you really want to go. So, you know, decide whether or not, you know, it's, it's worth it for you, but please apply. Uh, we also, we're sorting it out. So if people say like, oh, hey, I can't afford to, you know, you can check the box and say you can only come if you can like get on a, a discounted uh, ticket um, and we will put you in the pool. Uh, uh, f- for that, just know that we've set it up this year so that if you if you check that box, um, that means you'll get sorted into that pool and, and you won't get considered for the full price ticket. All right, that's just just for our own sanity this year. We had to do that, uh, but please apply, apply, apply. Um, IDS was so special this year, and we know it's going to be even more special this coming year. So we're very excited about it. Um, okay. Uh, that's it for me for now. Let us do the credits as we do them. Uh, also called where Noah stalls to look at. Oh, um, hold on. Take a look at the website. We've reviewed so much this week. Uh, Brian uh, up in San Francisco uh, has put in his first review, and it's for the Epic Immersive shows. Uh, I did that flash review for In Another Room. Also did a review of Odd Densities and uh, Centimere Pictures um, uh, Invoke. And then uh, we uh, um, we have stuff out of New York. I'm not looking at the website right now. I'm like trying to do it from the flash memory. Um, we've got the No Filter Diary that Lauren Bellow did. She's going to be adding to that. Uh, her week two notes are going in there soon. So we're keeping up uh, on the ARXs. Just, just so much. <laughs> oh my God, so much. Interviews uh, with Rogue Artist Ensemble. Uh, and we got more reviews coming up next week. The review embargo on Delusion Lifts next week. So we got that. I'm going to write that while I'm in Santa Fe. Um, there's uh, a lot of work to be done, uh, going to see, uh, regardless tonight. So just, just stuff. There's tons, there's tons, tons. And you know who helps us do that? Our Patreon backers. So go to patreon.com slash no proscenium to uh, help us uh, do this full time. So we can do nothing but this all day long because, um, 
honestly, we, we need to. Um, it's not even a want to, it's a need to. Uh, the music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Jan Bubman, Lonnie Hanson, Arth- Ari Herstan, Arthur Tubman, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. And of course, we are brought to you in part by our friends at Meow Wolf. You can find us at No Persinium on Twitter and Facebook, at No underscore Persinium on our Instagram. And hey, if you're not following our Instagram, please follow our Instagram. Um, it takes, uh, you got to get 10,000 followers to get the swipe up feature. And there's only two ways to do that, either to get 10,000 followers for real or to buy them on the open market. And you know the kind of person I am, I'm not going to buy them on the open market. So 10,000 followers on Instagram. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe I just need to like, you know, I don't I don't know. I need to start posting cute pictures of myself or something. I'm not sure. I'm not saying that's wrong for other people to do it. I'm saying it'd be wrong for me to do it. So please just tell, tell folks, tell a friend, get them to follow us. All right. Pitches at nopersinium.com is one way to get us your show information. We also have that air table. There's all the different things. Uh, go on the website, just nopersinium.com. I'm tired of saying the words. Go, go, go. All right. Huh. <sighs> Yeah, we're back. Until next time. Wait, no, I say it this way. This has been No Persinium. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show.